Due to its length, this interview with Dr. Brian Krim will be presented in two parts. The first part is featured here, and the second part will follow at the end of this same broadcast week. I hope you enjoy our discussion. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Great way to start a week. We're all together. I think most of us are still sheltering in place. So we look forward to this time, Monday through Friday nights, where we get an opportunity to socialize a little bit through the chat room and actually hear some great conversation and very interesting discussion from some terrific guests. Slick Eddie does a really good job of bringing the guests in. Sometimes they're clustered around topics, and this happens to be one of those times, and it's just completely random based on book releases and stuff like that. We had a guest on last week, uh, Dean Reuter. We talked about a book of his that discussed a Nazi war criminal, and I'm using that phrase, I'm not sure he did, although it's pretty clear he would have been considered a Nazi war criminal, who faked, according to his book, his own suicide, Hans Kammler. He was a general, an Obergruppenführer in the Third Reich, the Nazi army, in fact, in the SS. And we had this conversation about Nazi war crimes, the Holocaust, and and, uh, things related to that. And tonight we actually have another discussion about a similar topic, Project Paperclip. Now, for those of you who aren't aware what Project Paperclip is, it was an organized effort by the U.S. government and the U.S. military following, following World War II to gather and basically import into the United States a number of Nazi scientists, engineers... Some may consider them to have been more criminals themselves. But it was a secret project, and it was a real effort to keep those same scientists and engineers from falling into the hands of the Soviet Union. These are the people, these Nazi scientists and engineers, who developed technology that far exceeded anything that any other nation had, let alone the United States. Yes, we beat them to the nuclear bomb, to the atomic bomb. But they beat us to rocketry and and many, many other things. So the U.S. military really wanted this information and this technology, of course, and we did not want the Soviets to have it. So there was a decision made along the way to maybe look the other way at some what we would call war crimes, certainly some some heinous acts and the support of some heinous positions and bring these scientists to the United States. Many of them became very, very successful. And we're going to talk about that tonight with Dr. Brian Krim. And he is a professor. He's also obviously an author and a researcher. He's written about this. And I'm anxious to have the conversation. It's going to be very interesting. Just looking ahead quickly, Memphis Ghost Investigations will be with us tomorrow night to talk about some of their ghost hunting experiences and efforts. We haven't heard uh, from a group like this in a while, so I'm anxious to to do that tomorrow night and looking forward to getting back into the ghost conversations. Always fun. Joe Gallenberger will be here Wednesday night to talk about telekinesis. And then uh, Thursday night, we've got psychic medium Denise Marie joining us. That'll be another great conversation. So a week full of good stuff. Of course, Friday, if all goes well, booze, brews and bros. Um, We've been having some fun on Friday nights. If you haven't had an opportunity to join us for that, I won't call it a show because it's really not. It's more of a, very casual get-together that we do through YouTube and Twitch. 
and have an opportunity to uh, unwind a little bit, talk about things that are just a little more humorous, humorous and a uh, little more lighthearted. That's our Friday night program. So I hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody had a great weekend, had an opportunity to relax. I mean, I don't know what you do. If, you, if you're not relaxing, what do you do in, in a time when you're not supposed to leave your home? I do think we're seeing a light at the end of that tunnel. I'm hoping we are. I'm excited that we very well may be because, um, you know, it's tough. It's tough to uh, to have nothing but four walls to look at for, what are we going on, a month? How long has this been? I remember that there was talk of this opening up around Easter time. That's when the original, uh, um, I guess, wish date was set. And we've come and gone. We're a couple weeks past Easter, right? So uh, we, you know, gosh, five weeks, something like that. Anyway, I hope everybody's maybe making uh, an opportunity to get reacquainted with your kids. Maybe do some projects around the house, put up some shelves. I don't know. What do you, what, are, what projects do people do anymore? I don't do any of them. <laughs> I built a deck once and it, it actually came out really, really good. It was an, it was a very nice and well constructed deck still on the house that I built it on. I don't own the house anymore. But um, after I did that, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm good with those kind of projects. Not, not really my cup of tea. I'd rather sit and, and write computer code, although I don't do that much either anymore. So let's go to break, and when we come back, we'll bring in our guest again. Tonight, we'll be talking with Dr. Brian Krim, and we're talking about Operation Paperclip. By the way, he also has a book about another topic related to the Holocaust. It's called Planet Auschwitz. Holocaust representation in science fiction and horror. And I hope we have a little bit of time to touch on that one as well, because that's an interesting topic, particularly because I'm a horror film fan. I know of many of these uh, movies that use Nazi representations, whether it's Nazi zombies or the undead, or there's a movie called Frankenstein's Army, where this German Nazi doctor creates part robot, part human creatures to fight. Uh, it's all, it's all, it's almost all tongue in cheek stuff. But it's entertaining nonetheless. Let's go to break. We'll be right back. It's Beyond Reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. Welcome back to the program. It's Beyond Reality. Thanks for being along with us. Just make sure you subscribe if you subscribe if you found the YouTube channel. And if you haven't found the YouTube channel, go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson. It's very easy to find. I looked today. There's like 850 videos there. Those are all back episodes of this program. They're all there for your enjoyment. There's no charge to subscribe or anything. We always appreciate support of the program, whether it's just in the form of a subscription or if you uh, want to join our Patreon page, which, by the way, we have some new Patreon members that I will mention a little bit later in the show. Thank you to them. Um, but either way, just being part of it is really important. And if you join the YouTube stream during the live show, you actually can participate in the chat room, which is a lot of fun. A lot of great people in that chat room. I say hello to all of you tonight, as I do every night, and uh, appreciate you being there. Um, also find us on Facebook, Beyond Reality Radio, and you can find my page. It's JV Johnson, or you can find it through JVJ paranormal very easy to find tonight we're going to be talking about something far more serious however operation paperclip or some people know it as project paperclip was uh was and remains something very very controversial and i won't uh talk about it myself i'll let our guest do that because he's far more eloquent with the topic brian krim dr brian krim is a professor an author and a researcher and we welcome him to the program brian welcome to the show great to have you here thank you jv thanks for having me Let's um, 
Let's find out a little bit about you first, because I happen to know that uh, I've been a history buff since I can remember being interested in, in anything. And I was a real Civil War buff for a long time. Then I was a World War II buff for a long time. I still harbor those passions, but I don't get as much time to either read about it or, uh, you know, explore those uh, ideas. But you chose it as a bit of a career path. Tell us how that happened for you. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, not an easy thing to be a historian these days. The humanities are not exactly really popular, uh, and a, the job market is tough, but I, I hung in there. I started out as an intelligence analyst, um, so I, I, I've, that's one of the reasons I was attracted to something like Paperclip. I kind of know how that world works, and I got my Ph.D. really in modern European history, but it was a, a Holocaust specialty, and so when I started to really you know, get into the topic of the Holocaust. Obviously, you you're, you're when you want to be passionate about it, you want to be you want to teach the next generation, and that's what kind of motivated me. But also, that little detour I had for about five years in the intelligence community helped me realize also that history is something that uh, teaches you skills that matter very much in the real world, like intelligence analysis. You're piecing together a story from incomplete information, biased information. You have to boil it down for non-experts, and I found that to be just a you know, not only just a fascinating career and an important career, but it also mirrors kind of what I do in the classroom. And so with something like Paperclip, I wound up merging my interest of both Holocaust studies, modern German history, and intelligence history. And so the two of those things work really well together, and uh, that is the two of them are my passion. I took uh, a couple of college courses. Actually, I took a whole series of courses in college called The History of, of Western Civilization. And some people may think that those courses are rather uh, boring or mundane. I, I thought just the opposite. I found it explained so much about who I was and why I was and why we are as a nation and as a culture what we are than anything I had ever heard. I was It struck me that much, and it created a love for me of Europe as well, and I've been many, many times, uh, particularly in Germany. So I understand a bit of that uh, that hook that grabbed mm-hmm. you as well. But understanding these things not only helps us, as they say, not repeat mistakes of the past, which we see that happening all the time, but it also gives us an appreciation of who we are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, you know, history we tend to look at it as some sort of triumphalist narrative, like if there's a mythology there. And once you get into, I think, higher education, that, that's peeled away for most students. They come in with a, this you know, high school textbook mentality, and a lot of it's really kind of garbage. And then when you get into a really upper-level class, you start to see, wow, what I was told is not exactly true. And that's when you really, as you said, kind of discover yourself. Like, and that we're all the things. We're the good thing. We are the Federalist Papers, but we're also genocide. We are you know, the uh, the glory of the Constitution and slavery. Yeah. And you have to tell it all. And I think that's really, you know, how I approach teaching my students, too. Yeah, you have to tell it all. And you also have to find ways to reconcile the two and not realize that they're mutually exclusive and right. that, you know, as times change and attitudes change, people see things differently and start to recognize things that were customs or, or part of the culture yeah. as the mistakes they were. And that's part of maturing. Yeah, and you can't be too judgmental, otherwise you lose sight of being a historian and you start to become a commentator. And that that's a, a delicate balance, I understand. I have to say, though, after saying that, I don't think I can apply that same standard to the Holocaust. The Holocaust no, is a big... Well, yeah, right? That's not yeah. something we're going to look back at in <laughs> no. a couple, a hundred years, two hundred years, and say, oops, that was a mistake, we, we, we know better now, right? We knew, we knew 
that was wrong when it was happening. Yeah, and when you met, you talk about Western civilization, and I try to teach my students that look, a lot, a lot of people look at the Holocaust as an aberration of, from that it's somehow a break from Western civilization. But you also have to realize that everything that made Western civilization is also in that horrific moment: science, law, technology, bureaucracy. You know, all those things that make can make Western civilization efficient and, and wonderful can also become terrible in the wrong hands. And so it's part of a continuum. And uh, yeah, but that's, it's also part of the story of Western civilization. I have to ask you this because you not only study, write about and research the Holocaust and some of these things we're going to be talking about tonight, but you also teach about them as well. What's happening in in youth today? It seems as though there are many who don't even understand what had actually happened during those war years and what the Holocaust truly was and how horrific it was. And there are actually some that deny it happened. What what are you seeing? You know, I don't get so much denial as just complete and total ignorance, and that's on the spectrum of denial in, in a way. And I think so much of it is that, you know, I don't know about your state. I live in Virginia. But I think most states have this SOL type of testing where it's all about you teach history to the te- to some test. Yeah. And it's and it has and it, there's no critical thinking. There's not enough time to delve into topics very seriously unless you're you know take an AP class or something like that. So it's they just aren't exposed to it. And it used to be that you know every class got to listen to a survivor at some point. Well, now there's hardly any survivors left. So you're losing the actual living memory of the Holocaust. And I think it's just makes uh, just you know education so much more important that you ha- that we're all that's left between losing that memory and when you forget it you don't or it's just you know in uh, bad TV shows or or bad movies as opposed to you know quality work done then it, of course they're going to forget it they're not going to know anything and that's what I deal with and that's what I try to correct but I see it getting worse every year mostly because of that that awful testing yeah. What do you see in your students' reactions when you start to explain to them how horrific those actions were during the Holocaust? You must see their faces melt in some cases. Most of the time I do, and and some of them are so jaded, I think because, look, this generation's already been through a lot. Uh, They're also exposed to so much graphic imagery every day that maybe the when they see something that's on the historical record, it doesn't register. But I think really what you have to focus on are the, are the personal stories. You know, the, when I, sometimes it's not showing the awful videos. I don't like to show those the bulldozers full of bodies and the things that I think maybe a lot of us grew up with. I like to just show them a YouTube clip of a survivor speaking in a room to another person, and that's it. And, that, and that's, that's the sort of thing that breaks them. When they see just the pain on it, on an old person's face recalling something, that to me is far more effective than trying to bombard them with, you know, ugly imagery because they get that already. What do you find? I, I, I find it absolutely amazing and I love watching and I wish I'd had an opportunity to have some discussions myself with survivors, but I love watching yeah. these interviews and so many of these people are so strong and not only did they suffer the most horrific of circumstances and yeah. see so much death and torture, but they came out of it and they lived their lives. They just went on and lived. It's an amazing quality. And and these people are some of the most amazing people that have ever walked the face of the earth. You know, and one of the things that's common to to their testimony 
is that even when they're going through it, they say, well, if I survive, I win. I beat them. Yeah. Now, that by having children, by getting married, you know, in the displaced persons camps that were erected, you know, just months after liberation, uh, there was just this wave of, of, of childbirths and marriages and, you know, just an, uh, just remarkable just will to live. And I, and I, I think that's what carries on. You know, like, look, we, we win if we, have, if we survive. We we the, we finally whether well, even if we lost everybody in between we've won by just producing another life or living life on our own terms. Not that you ever forget it. And so many of them will ultimately say that they forgive the people that did these mm-hmm. things to them. How is that? I mean, that's I guess that's a that's the highest of human qualities. I would say. Yeah, and I've actually have had a survivor come to our campus who who did exactly that and they were kind of gasped in the room uh, and she was one of Mengele's twins if you can oh, believe wow. that wow uh, not that she forgave him necessarily but she forgave you know, guards and things that she worked with right. but yeah it's uh it either goes in one direction or the other just as many survivors you become more religious or they deny god altogether and you can understand both perspectives sure. and I, I think the ones that are coming out you know, more in t- in tune with their religion tend to be the more forgiving, but uh, it's it's varied. But yeah, I have I've seen that happen in person, and it it is jarring. Let's talk about your book and the topic that uh, it covers. We're talking about, of course, our Germans, Project Paperclip, and the National Security State. For those who might not know, and there are some that that might not, what was Operation or Project Paperclip? Now, simply put, uh, the Operation Paperclip was the U.S. intelligence operation to find the best and the brightest German scientists working in a number of fields, rocketry, aeronautics, biological weapons, chemical weapons, and in some cases just, you know, the hard sciences, before uh, either other allies could take, that, could take them, like the Soviet Union, but also France and Britain, and, and mine their minds for, for this knowledge and help contribute to the long-range defense planning of the United States. And it really began before the war was even over. You know, when they're planning D-Day, they know these scientists exist. They know there's important locations. It's all about finding them first, getting the material, the documents, and the machinery, and then eventually thinking it might be better to have the actual mines themselves. And Paperclip went beyond just trying to find them and detain them, but actually posited the notion that we should bring them to the United States for long-range exploitation. And that's what Paperclip officially was, was bringing these people, up to 1,500 of them eventually, to the United States uh, for as long as necessary. When this, these decisions were being made, first of all, maybe it's a good idea to set the stage. Uh, yeah. we, we know that, and most people know that the Germans and the Nazis had uh, functioning rockets. We did not. The many people probably know that the Nazis had jet aircraft that we did not. Right. So, kind of set the stage as to how far ahead were they technologically at the end of the war. Now, I think there's there's over the years a little uh, some mythology there that the Germans were so far advanced, and if they had, you know, they were so close to winning the war with some of these wonder weapons, they were very advanced in prototypes, except for the V-2 rocket, which was a, a working ICBM, essentially, but it contributed nothing to the military effort, and uh, it killed a lot of civilians in England and, and the Netherlands. 
uh, and it was a breakthrough in te- military technology, but it also was a lot of effort and misdirected. So while the United States is building the atomic bomb, the Germans are building these boutique weapons that had contributed nothing to their to to victory, obviously, uh, and took a lot of energy away from more useful uh, matters they could have dealt with. But things like the uh, the jet aircraft, for example, was, were brilliant, except they came way too late and they could never mass produce them. They had electric submarines that could you know, go underwater for you know, far longer than any other battery could and travel great distances. But again, they had a handful of them. This, this is the German problem all along. They had brilliant minds, but were never able to mass produce these that have an effect during the war. What the United States wanted to do is take those brilliant minds and harness it to our own enormous industrial capacity that we had proven to be very effective and, and see if we could ultimately take the best from both worlds and, uh, and unite them in a you know, concerted effort to build a, a, a modern national security state. Was the reason they couldn't mass produce them because at the time that the technology had become available to them as they developed it, that their infrastructure had already been so uh, crippled by the war effort and their resources had been dwindled? That's a big part of it. Uh, they had to move underground, for, which is where the V2 is built. And you know, the, to, that automatically limits what you can do. And also their their fuel supplies were completely shut off. I and mean, one of the reasons where they were in North Africa with Rommel and that effort was to get closer to the oil field. Well, they, they could not, they had ordered the caucuses in Russia that was taken away from them. Yeah. But what they did is they created synthetic fuel, which was pretty amazing. So they, they always had an, a solution, but it could never be mass produced. And by the time you get to 1944, when most of these things are coming online, well, they're already basically in a defensive posture and, and it's a waiting game till their eventual defeat. So at what point was Operation Paperclip organized and actually officially uh, sanctioned? And I have to assume that the president of the United States sanctioned it. Uh, and what department did it come yeah. from? State Department? Defense Department? Give us the origins. Yeah. So every military service, which is one of the problems the United States always has, that there's so much competition between every uh, so many bureaucracies and, and the military services especially. But it was really the Navy were the first ones that came up, came up with the idea, of, well, can we bring some of these people over to the United States? And that was, you know, April, May of 1945. Remember, the war ends in, in May of 1945. So it was a uh, War Department effort to find, first and foremost, the rocket team. So about uh, the 120 scientists that did build these V2s, these these terror weapons, they were the primary target. And they, and so what was called at the time Operation Overcast was sanctioned by President Truman in July of 1945 to just bring over 350 scientists and personnel to work just on the V2. And so that's what he wanted to limit to, to this, these, this special group of people. And then Paperclip was an expanded program that allowed up to a thousand scientists, and and again Truman uh, agreed to this, but he also said only if they're vetted properly, there could be no, as you put it, hardcore Nazis in this group. Well, the military didn't. I think they lived by the letter of that law, but not the spirit, because they basically just didn't check to see if they were vetted or not. They just took who they wanted and didn't bother to look into their past. That's where the name paperclip comes from. In fact, paperclip meant that if you had a dossier 
of a of a scientist you knew was a war criminal or had a very very sketchy past that could never pass muster under this executive order. You put a paperclip on that dossier, and that communicated to everyone down the line. Do not look at this very carefully because otherwise we'll get in trouble. So it's one of the few times that a code name like actually told you what the operation was. Paperclip was you put a paperclip on the people you want to bring over, and that way no one's going to look too closely to their background. Well, that was going to be my next question. So in the discussions as this uh, operation was being uh, planned and structured, do we have any of the records? I imagine they, at the time they would have been classified, maybe still are, I don't know, uh, where we had this this conversation about what to do if we had a brilliant mind who was a hardened Nazi and maybe even a war criminal. We do have that now. Thanks to around 1999, uh, this is an effort that started with the Clinton and through the, the Bush administration. There was a um, a lot of pressure from Congress to open up the files on, on issues just like this, like for the, how much cooperation did the United States enter into with former Nazis and uh, in, you know, imperial Japanese personnel as well, but mostly Nazis. And so around 2010, all, there was a 12 million files declassified. And that's what I used, not all 12 million, but I used that record group to, to write this book. And there, it's all there. It's all so, it's, it's what's shocking is that it says in black and white, you cannot have members of the SS. You cannot have someone who is listed as Category 1 Nazi, all, very detailed. And so the people in charge of the investigation was the, was the military government and the Army Counterintelligence Corps. They would do legitimate, legitimate investigations on the people on the list that were supposed to come over. And whenever they found you know, someone who did horrible things, they would put it in their file. Then another part of the government, uh, it was called the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, they would take those files and literally just change the wording in them or erase some of the words, such as um, so-and-so is an ardent Nazi. They would change it to so-and-so is not an ardent Nazi. Mm-hmm. It was literally that obvious and, and blatant what they did. And you can compare the records one by one, and that's what I did. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself in the conversation, yeah. but if things were being changed and documents were being altered, and, and you know, these folks may have had a, a justification for doing so at the time. I mean, there was a different world. We had a Soviet Union that was becoming quickly our adversary, not our ally. Um, but did anybody get in trouble for doing that? No, uh, absolutely not. Uh, the, the, there were, you know, no, no one was watching and no one wanted to to ask the, those questions. In fact, the only people who got in trouble were the ones who stood in opposition to pay, Project Paperclip for exactly standing up to the to this uh, wrongdoing. Uh, and the State Department in particular were the ones who had a problem with immigration of these people, and they were the ones who got in trouble for daring to stand up to it. How many German scientists did it ultimately include? You said the original batch was 350 or so, but how many did it ultimately encompass? Well, you know, if you, it's, it's 1,500 to 1,600 scientists, technicians, uh, and, um, and personnel. And that does not include family members because once you know, they sign these contracts, they, they can not only bring their immediate family, but also even their extended family. So you're bringing over you know, thousands of more that way, but a, a total of 15 to 1600 over the course of say 19, uh, well, 1945 to 1955. Uh, but a version of this really went into the 1960s as well when there was an in- independent Germany. So they're actually, you know, taking Germans from a 
some of sovereign country of West Germany. So, and it wasn't just the United States and its allies that were doing this, or maybe even just, I don't know if we were doing this in coordination with our allies or not, but the Soviet yeah. Union was trying to do the same thing, weren't they? They were, and that's one of the reasons that we escalated our own uh, exploitation program, it was called, is that we knew that the Soviets were uh, equally interested, and they cared even less about the backgrounds of the scientists. They assumed right. that every German walking was a hardcore Nazi. They didn't play these games about, did they do this or did they do that? They, would, they just took who they wanted. The problem was that you know, most Germans, if given a choice, wanted to go to the Western zones or the United States to work and not the Soviet Union. Uh, but the Soviets had a very compelling offer themselves. They, would, they used every trick in the book. They would either use intimidation, show up to your house with a gun, or they would bribe you and pay you far higher than even the, the Americans did. It was, it was a scattershot approach. It wasn't very well done. But they, uh, they certainly did not waste time investigating the backgrounds of the scientists. They just took them or they bribed them. And once we heard about that, the U.S. intelligence community said, well, we better be on our toes here and just uh, expedite any investigation we have. And if they look bad, then we just change the record. Two questions. Who got who got the better end of the well, that's not a good way to ask it. <laughs> who got the better scientists? And secondly, was did were there anybody was anyone uh, uh, captured, I'll say, by the Soviet Union that that we really, really wanted? Yeah, and you could say overall the United States got the better scientists, and the Soviets got more of them. Uh, they probably by ten to one, they the Soviets had more. Oh wow! But um, we, but the cream of the crop was Werner von Braun and, and the rocket team. But members of that team also made it to the Soviet Union. In particular, the head of the Germans in the Soviet Union was the number three under Werner von Braun. His name was Helmut Gutrup, and he's responsible for building their long-range rockets, and, and he had a major role in what would become Sputnik. So we desperately wanted him, but the Soviets got him first. They took, they took his family, they bribed him, they uh, made life as comfortable as they could for him. Uh, but overall, I think they were the Soviets were envious of, of who the United States was able to get. Yet, I think it's a wash in terms of, of the long-term influence, however. Were, was it just scientists and engineers and their families, or were there also like industrialists or some type of, you know, yeah. more corporate type uh, researchers? Yeah, that's a, a funny thing I found because uh, Werner von Braun uh, was able to bring whoever he wanted. He could simply put, you know, tell his army captors and then later his patrons, "Look, I want uh, this group of people," and he wound up getting a bunch of patent lawyers and uh, people he worked with over the years that had no scientific ability. And some of them were just really sketchy people that had horrible backgrounds and didn't even have anything to offer. So, yeah, we, we got a lot of uh, exactly corporate types, people who, who did were management in some of these German companies that um, you know built some of these prototypes. They had some value, I suppose, but it was strange to see people who were basically corporate lawyers in the same being mentioned in the same breath as you know physicists and, and aeronautical specialists we recognized that this was important or some people did uh right at near near the uh, ending of the war so in uh, spring of 1945 and as you mentioned this this program extended into the 50s and actually uh, into the 60s in some fashion so what were these people doing f for those years following the war 
but before they became part of this and brought to the United States? Well, there wasn't much time between that, but what the United States did is uh, first try to exploit them in-country, in in Germany. So they built these um, special camps just for people of interest. They had one for former German military officers that they wanted. They had one for intelligence people, and they had uh, several for scientists. And the deal was, you know, if you can live on these essentially glorified prison camps, your family will will get more food and shelter than they would in bombed-out Germany. Uh, But over time, there's so many security risks here because the Soviets and, believe it or not, the French were far more uh, good at, you know, kidnapping scientists out of these places and, and hiring them than even the Russians were. It became this real fear that if we, if we keep them in, you know, occupied western part of Germany, they're going to be either taken over by the Soviets or we're gonna, they're going to slip through the, the barbed wire here and we're never going to find them again. So that was part of the reason to, for paperclip is, well, let's bring them to the United States where, at the very least, they are not going to fall into you know, enemy hands or friendly competition hands like uh, Britain or France. Yeah, so it was really a short-term period before they came in that that you know, end of the war and before they came here. So let's talk about that a bit. What were what were the what was the position of our allies, France and England, uh, as this was happening? Were they trying to get the same people for themselves? And and obviously, you said the French were better at. You said I think yeah. there was the word kidnapping. Was there they, really they some really of that did. going on? Yeah, it was. It, I I kind of it was like a wild west atmosphere. I try to describe that world in, in my book is that this was, you know, open border. We think about these zones of occupation. We have this image of the Cold War where everything is tightly controlled. It was a free-for-all in the early days of, of the occupation. I mean, zones could easily just be, you know, traversed and in any way. And and uh, and we tend to think of the, especially even the British as our, our closest friends, but they wanted the same people, too. They wanted Werner von Braun. They, and, but we had, you know, we stole them right from underneath them and just paid them more. Uh, as, or, and the French didn't care about any previous agreement. They literally did send agents into the American zone. Uh, pushed, they pushed scientists into moving cars, drove them over the French border, and suddenly they're now working at a French company. And the Russians had the classic honeypot trick, where they would have a you know beautiful woman lure a scientist into a hotel room, and waiting for him was a you know, NKVD officer with a passport and a, you know, a, uh, a pay book and say, you're now coming with us. The, my, the files are filled with these stories. I just tried to even give a taste of them because there's so many. I know you've written about some pop culture stuff, too, and I hope we get a chance to talk about yeah. that book uh, at the end of our discussion. But it sounds to me like these little outlines that you've given us in describing what the competition was between nations. It sounds like some great fodder for some spy movies. And I, I really, I, and I used to love all these movies before I got into paperclip. I realized that this is just reporting the facts. <laughs> they don't even have to make anything up here. It's some of it is, is truly bizarre. And, and you would expect it always from the Russians because that's how we tend to, you know, think of them and our movies show us that. But the French were even, and the and the diplomatic traffic shows you this. We're far angrier at France than we are at the Soviet Union, for example. And say, you know, forty five and forty six. We're not yet looking at the Soviet Union as a problem. It's it's really all of them are a problem. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd imagine the attitude there was: we know the Soviet Union is an adversary, but we right. just helped the French get their nation back, and we, yeah. you know, we saved England from losing theirs. Uh, you'd think we'd uh, we wouldn't be in competition with them. Yeah. You'd think we'd have some gratitude. Yeah, everyone was looking for reparations, and and that's even the word that we used for paperclip. Is we get intellectual reparations by by taking these people, and the French are like, look, they occupied us for you know four years here. We're we're um more than that. If I, we're, we're taking them all. Uh, and if they, and we're going to pay them and if they were, we'll threaten them either way. So it was, uh, everyone was, used the carrot and the stick and, and the, the French were pretty good at both. All right, let's go to break here. Again, we're talking tonight with Dr. Brian Krim and we're talking about his book. It's called our Germans project paperclip in the national security state. Let's talk about, uh, how the selection process happened for these, uh, in many cases, Nazis, uh, German scientists, who was in the room, who was making the decisions, and was it a case of like almost like a baseball draft in the sense that you had maybe the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, uh, you know, some some commercial, uh, uh, corporate yeah. interests? What was happening in that room? You know, it's all the above. When you mentioned, I mean, there was the Department of Commerce. They, you had Bulova Watch Company. You had GE. You had IBM. Um, uh, what would become of the major aeronautic corporations, you know, Douglas Aircraft, and all, they were all in the room. But this, what really was the, the, it was a small group called the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, which was a primarily military. And there was, and it was led by an 06, you know, either a Navy captain or a Army colonel. And that's a relatively low rank sure, amount yeah. of power wow. these people had. Uh, and they were the ones that worked off of this list called the Osenberg List. The story of how they got the list is pretty amazing. Uh, you know, right around the 1942, uh, end of 42, the SS compiled their own list of 15,000 German scientists that they thought would be useful for the war effort, and they wanted to put them on the list so they wouldn't be drafted accidentally and could be put to work. And someone uh, in Polish intelligence got a hold of that list and uh, was able to get a copy to... Uh, to the Allies and particularly to the Americans, and so we worked off of this list of, of fifteen thousand names to develop the kind of you know the dream the dream team for for paperclip, and that's what the the JIOA used to track down who they wanted. And in some cases, they fell into their hands, like you know, Vander von Braun drove across Germany to get to the Americans before he could, the Soviets got to him. So you're lucky there, but in other cases, everyone was working off the same list, and it was this small group of people who were really answerable to nobody. They have this thin veil of an executive order that basically let them do anything. Uh, that probably sounds familiar these days, but it was kind of shocking then. Was there any effort by maybe loyal Nazis to thwart or maybe even assassinate some of these people? Uh, yeah, there was. In fact, the, um, the, that's one of the reasons why the rocket team led by Von Braun started fled uh, where they were, which was kind of on the Baltic coast near the Soviet zone. It wasn't they, that they were afraid the Soviets would overrun them right away. They were fearful that the SS, which was in charge of the rocket program by the end of the war, were going to kill them all before they fell into enemy hands. And there was a reasonable suspicion that was going to happen. So they, I mean, it wasn't, wasn't out, of, out of the question. So they, they uh, took, ran off and got a bunch of Jeeps and started driving toward, toward Bavaria. And that was, that's a very real threat. What about, uh, did any escape Germany? Uh, you know, we know that a lot of uh, 
Nazis went to South America? Did any escape mm -hmm. Germany proper and we had to go find them? Well, here, yeah, many times they did wind up in places like, uh, obviously, South America, Egypt, uh, Turkey was a real haven for for some really bad characters, not not just scientists. But they really had no problem uh, finding a safe place in any of the Allied countries. And when we did find a a scientist that we knew was too controversial, whether you could even hide their record because they were so bad, the United States actually helped them get to Argentina and would use their knowledge there with an agreement with, with the Argentine government, you know, Peron government. Um, and Alan Dulles himself, you know, the first head of the CIA, was, uh, well, second, if you want to, when it was the CIA, but he actually uh, helped get some really notable scientists to Argentina under the, this agreement that, look, we can't keep them here, but can we use what they're producing on like a, you know, just cooperate by giving us their, the results of their research. So we were the ones helping them escape in some time. Tell me how bad the bad ones were. If there are a couple that stand out to you that really should have been in Nuremberg yeah. at the trials uh, for the crimes they committed, uh, any make that list? They they do. I mean, I think for the most part, the really awful ones don't make it to the United States, or if they do, they don't last long. But uh, there are a few. For example, the one we did send to Argentina was in the United States for a while. His name was Walter Schreiber, and he was an epi epidemiologist. And so he would test uh, bioweapons on concentration camp victims. And that was just how he did his business, and that's how German science operated. He was in the United States for a while until the Air Force found out, or well, the press actually got a hold of, of this information, and all of a sudden he had to be dispatched to Argentina where no one could touch him. Uh, that was one. And most of our Air Force medicine comes from awful research conducted in concentration camps. Wow. Uh, places like Dachau and Bergen-Belsen. You've probably heard of the so-called cold experiments where you dump uh, inmates into frozen water to see how long it takes for them to die. Uh, or the pressure experiments where you subject inmates to horrific low pressure and high pressure, to, again, to determine how, well, at what point do they die. That that data is used and was used by by um, U.S. Air Force medicine, and some of the doctors who conducted those experiments wound up in San Antonio, uh, building our own um, aerospace medicine program. And some of them stayed for uh, you know decades. Now they weren't probably the ones that actually conducted the experiment, but they ordered it, they oversaw it, they used the data. Uh, so have, being that one step removed from something like that is, is uh, pretty common. And I think that's the most egregious case, is especially the aerospace medicine people. You know, obviously the uh, United States government and the military particularly had a real interest in this technology and these ideas and being ahead of the Soviet Union on all of it. But there was also a scientific community here that was doing a lot of this work itself already. What did they? What was their attitude on the uh, these Nazis coming here and becoming involved in their work? You know, I, that's one of the things that struck me is that you know the army, the military, was really uh, believed in this myth of the great German mind that somehow just by being a German scientist, they're better than our own scientists, and they and they said that all the time. And I'm thinking to myself, who built the atomic bomb? Yeah. <laughs> we we did these things, and but so there was this disconnect between 
the military and the civilian scientific community, which is almost universally opposed to paperclip, not just for moral reasons, but because it actually did threaten their jobs. Uh, you had some of these German scientists are taking uh, very high-paid civil service jobs and then later corporate jobs that could easily have gone to American scientists. And so most were opposed. Uh, you also had a fair number of of German-Jewish refugees who had been in the United States since the 30s working in the scientific community that literally had to work side-by-side by, side by Nazi scientists. Oh, yeah. That's a, that was a common story. Uh, people like Einstein were writing New York uh, Times editorials condemning Paperclip uh, once it became public. And so, yeah, most, most American scientists saw it as a, tr- a double threat, one to the kind of morality and, and pres- the pristine nature of what they saw as research science, and then also job security. This is a hypothetical, so I'm not sure if we can get a real answer to this question, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on it. How high up the hierarchy was the U.S. government and the people making these decisions willing to go for technology? And for example, a hypothetical, let's say um, Hermann Goering was uh, was a mastermind of aerospace technology and he was responsible for jet fighters and rocketry and those things. Would we have accepted someone of his level and his culpability uh, as a member of this uh, effort? No, I think the... I can answer that question by comparing a case study that actually happened, which is in the in Japan. The uh, the equivalent of a, of a lieutenant general was in charge of their bioweapons program, and we brought that person. Who I mean, we were talking one of the worst of the worst, and we brought him to the United States and uh, mine. You know, picked his brain, uh, prevented him from getting uh, being wrapped up in the equivalent of the, of the Nuremberg trials in Japan because he provided such valuable information. Now, was he as high as someone like Goering? No, but I, that proved to me that we clearly had no compunction about taking uh, any steps necessary if the research is deemed that valuable. Um, it, it's, somewhat, it's more difficult when the person is public, and that wasn't the case. Vera von Braun was sort of a well-known commodity, uh, but he also wasn't, didn't have his hands dirty in, in, in the way that someone like Goering did. But I, yeah, if there's a way around it, they would have done anything possible uh, to avoid humiliation uh, by having it eventually discovered. Well, that's something that they could cover up more, I think, easily, more easily in the late 40s than they could now. So, yeah, I, I don't think it would have been too much of a stretch at all. You mentioned that uh, in one one particular case, the press got a hold of some information which forced, uh, I don't remember the name of the, the, the gentleman that you had mentioned, but he was sent to Argentina to make him untouchable. Mm-hmm. Uh, how common was the knowledge of this, and how uh, closely was the press watching it? Yeah, that, yeah, that was Walter Schreiber, and I, he was a, a particular case just because you know, everyone knew he was in the country, but the background came out later. So the fact that he was a German scientist who did awful things wasn't a surprise, but that he did that level of awful things surprised people. But the army knew this was going to come out because you can't have hundreds of Germans living in Ohio and Texas and New (laughs) Mexico and Virginia and Boston and not have people wonder what's going on. So as early as October 1946, they put out a press releases, and they invited local press into Wright Field in Ohio and whatever and said, look at these Germans, they work for us now. And sure, it was sanitized, but they basically laid out really everything Paperclip was uh, and, and expected it to be unpopular, but also 
quickly forgotten. And that, that turned out to be true. So I quote a Gallup poll where basically it said that, you know, 75% of Americans disapproved of paperclip when they heard about it. But how, how much they did or how much it stayed with them was another question. And, and once the Cold War starts to become a, a reality, then people aren't thinking about it at all. And, and the people who are opposing it are uh, people you might expect, and Einstein, the NAACP, the American Jewish Congress. Sure, they're going to be upset, but most Americans just go about their business. So I'm, I was amazed by just how public it was. How um, was it handled when they got here? Uh, you know, we most of us who have any familiarity with this project, this process, uh, know the ultimate fate of uh, Werner von Braun and, and how successful he was here. But what was done? Were, were these people uh, kept in camps when they got here? And uh, did they did they just go to work in an office like everyone else did? How did this happen? Right. Yeah, they started out in in really kind of glorified military custody. So they at right field, uh, you know, they they had the same kind of housing as as officers. And what's really interesting is that there are still PO, German POWs at right field, and so they basically were assigned to be the kind of uh, servants to these German scientists. They would do their laundry. They would, you know, be clean their rooms. It was it was kind of strange scenario. But then when they realized that, you know, because initially Paper Club was a six-month contract, so he didn't feel like they had to do much to, to keep them happy. But then when they realized that the morale was really low, the scientists were complaining and they missed their families, then by, by uh, mid-1946, the idea is, well, we better bring their families here, and even offer immigration status. And that's what changed the game. That's what made Paperclip a temporary, you know, let's take these POWs and, and get what we can out of them into something that I think most Americans find horribly distasteful, which is let's celebrate them, give them citizenship, while there's tens of thousands of displaced persons who can't come to America uh, on quotas that the Nazis are using. Um, and let's not only do that, but let's make them civil servants as well. So. There, the switch happened really over the course of uh, mid-1946 to spring of 1947. A lot of people credit Werner von Braun with uh, America's ultimate success in getting to the moon. Uh, my question to you is, do you credit him with that? And secondly, can you point to, is there are there any other obvious or, um, I, I guess, uh, maybe let, lesser known uh, success yeah. stories like that of any of these scientists that we should be talking about? Yeah, I'll preface it by saying I am not a historian of science and technology, but I consulted all those who I knew were and their books about uh, the American space program and, and the German contribution. And they all agree that what Paperclip does and Werner von Braun did specifically was help the United States catch up to where the Germans were in 1945. We were about five years behind, and we, he, he got us to the level of the V2 almost immediately with uh, in his early months in the United States, and that was truly important. And the Soviets had their Germans do the same thing for them. What Werner Braun, von Braun was a genius at was a, as a project manager. He could take something on a blueprint and, and turn it into a workable product uh, quickly and efficiently and, and figure out how to mass produce it as well. And so this is not to say he wasn't a great physicist. He was got a Ph.D. when he was 20. I mean, he was... He's all those things, but really what he was was a, uh, a very skilled project manager, and most of the historians of science I talked to say, look, what he did, any uh, 
American scientists coming out of Georgia Tech or the Jet Propulsion Lab, or any, which also probably had more to do with the space program than, than anything else, he, he was in a position because to do things that any American could, but because it was him, we remember him and, and lionize him when it could have been any number of people with a similar background and training. So it, it's, it's not so much was it he's so special, is it just, he's just so unique for being there at the right time with the right group around him, which was by the time he gets to the late space program is a mixed group of Germans, Americans, and you know, uh, other, other refugees, in fact. So are there any other examples of that kind of success that maybe we wouldn't yeah. wouldn't be household names but maybe their achievements right. would be? There are uh there there the number of scientists who who were great in um in the private sector. So I mentioned the Bolova Watch Company, you had people working for Kodak uh that uh you know benefited greatly from specific German scientists. The um I'm trying to think. Yeah, Arthur Arthur Rudolph is a is a very controversial person because he was the only German to actually have to leave the country because he had the threat of prosecution. But he was really the father of the Saturn V, and and um, was also one of Werner von Braun's close associates. But Arthur Rudolph did have he, he's exactly the type of moral dilemma we have here because we do have this genius, but he was directly responsible for war crimes, including ordering the mass hanging of workers in an underground factory in in germany uh, i mean he directly was responsible for a war crime yet without him the saturn five uh was you know defunct that's an uncomfortable thing to kind of contend with uh we talked about what our allies were thinking and doing and we talked about what the soviets were thinking and doing but was there any other uh protesting or concern coming from the international community from the international community not really, which is interesting. There was also, I think it was more about envy. You know, okay, why do, you know, why do they have them and we don't? And what are, what are we doing uh, to keep up? Um, the the British, what they did is they would also had similar problems. They couldn't have some of these high profile Nazis wandering around England, especially when some of them, especially, are responsible for you know, killing thousands of civilians with the V2. So what they did is they would send them places like Canada and New Zealand and Australia. They used the Commonwealth to hide them. Uh, So it's, it's, there's not much protest from the rest of the world, except maybe the Federal Republic of Germany, when they are a a sovereign country in 1949, they're protesting the fact that their best minds are being stolen from them. And, And that they did protest openly. And that did force the United States to actually have to, uh, change tactics and, and cover it up a little better and and make some kind of compensation to to now a sovereign government. We have seen some high-profile uh, war crimes. Um, I'm trying to remember when the last one was, and I think I just watched a documentary about um, the butcher of... I'm, I'm blanking now. Um, you know, but oh, we... Uh, yeah, Klaus Barbie. No, uh, I'm not, not Klaus Barbie. No, it's the, uh, it's the, the documentary. The Jacker. Yeah, yeah the, that's right. Um, anyway, you know, we've seen some of these, and we know we know that there were groups dedicated to going out and yeah. finding Nazi war criminals. What were they saying about some of this? You know, it was uh, what's funny. I, a lot of people probably watched the Amazon show Hunters, uh, which is, you know, a fictional take on Nazi hunters. And it, Project Paperclip was the jumping-off point for that story. And I actually did a, a documentary for them um, 
for Amazon to, to coincide with the show to kind of do the real paperclip. And, and they, they asked the same thing, like, where, where was the truth behind it? Well, obviously nothing in the show is true, but Simon Wiesenthal, who is a real Nazi hunter, did have a number of, of paperclip scientists on his list of people who had to he feel face justice. And, and the government did hide them sufficiently enough that he never got a hold of them. But there, there were, the, interestingly, the group that did go after Paperclip was within the Justice Department. And that didn't happen, though, until much later in the 1970s. The, cre- the creation of the Office of Special Investigation uh, w- is, was dedicated to hunting war cr- criminals, not just Nazis, but that's really who they're after at first. And they uh, found themselves in the position of investigating the military. This is how the truth of Paperclip I think the, the sketchy parts of it came out was that you had one part of the government investigating the other. That's something we're kind of used to now, but it was a shocking thing for the Justice Department and the FBI to suddenly go find the secrets out of the military and see that they were complicit in hiding these people, breaking our own immigration laws and our own um, uh, denazification policy. And, and that, but yet that doesn't come out to the 1970s. Times of war and times of um, even the Cold War, which is exactly what it sounds like. It was a Cold War, but it was still a, a war of sorts. Uh, sometimes call for strange measures and, and strange policies. On balance, as you look back, at, and with all the research you've done on this, all the commentary you've seen on it, and the information you've compiled in your book, do you think this was a justified trade-off of looking the other way of some people that may have done some terrible things in exchange for the uh, capabilities, the technology, and the information they brought to us. Was it worth it? Yeah, when I wrote the book, what I wanted to do is, is get beyond what I think were two competing schools of history. One was the, celeb- the celebrating of, of the paperclip and, and, and the, um, the rocket team in particular, seeing them as like heroes and basically the Reiner von Braun image of this American hero, the Disney icon. I mean, uh, getting beyond that and the other side, which sees Paperclip as this horrific evil conspiracy that was it betrayed American values. What I wanted to show is that there was this uh, balance here, that it wasn't a, um, an either-or situation. Now, my whole pr- uh, approach here is, that paperclip was rather ordinary when you look at how national security policy was created after World War II. That was in the context of, of building this national security state that we take for granted. It wasn't that amazing. What's amazing about it is that it was so open and obvious, and they didn't try to hide the certain aspects of it, and that it just became business as usual. What I wanted to expose is that this is something we take for granted. Now, the moral lesson is, should we take this for granted? Do we make these um, moral calculations on a daily basis? I think we do, but we have to be honest with ourselves and can't. And, and whenever we issue phrases like American exceptionalism and our foreign policy is grounded in human rights and morality, well, we can't say that when we look at an operation like Paperclip and see that we are um, making these these horrific choices about whether to sacrifice our values for what, at the time, uh, was relatively short-term technological gain. And just writing a complete history of the project, to me, is a way 
for Americans to come to grips with it and decide for ourselves if, if this is who we are, this is what we want to be, because we make these types of choices on a daily basis now. Uh, telling the truth about what we've done in the past can really provide you know, some insight and allow us to decide for ourselves what can be done in our name, because Paperclip is done in our name collectively. And I think the choices are, uh, are not always easy, and I try to show that it was, uh, in some cases, lawful, but in other cases it was highly irregular and immoral. Uh, it was all of those things. You can't um, condemn it totally, and nor should you ever be celebrated. We're going to go to break here in just a moment. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk about your new book, Planet Auschwitz, for just a moment. Um, but before we do that, the the Project Paperclip, Operation Paperclip book, book is called Our Germans, Project Paperclip and the National Security State. Where can people find it? You can buy it uh, pretty much anywhere. And Amazon, I see it's, you know, it's under 20 bucks now. The paperclip just, the, the paperback just came <laughs> out uh, a couple of months ago and, that's um, easily under $20 on Amazon. So, yeah, go there. Go to uh, to Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, you name it, you can find it. That concludes the first part of my discussion with Dr. Brian Krim. Tune in later in the week for the second half of this discussion from Beyond Reality. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.